The Take On Duchenne podcast is dedicated to educating and raising awareness of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or DMD, a rare and progressive genetic disease affecting muscle function. We bring scientific leaders in the field of DMD together to discuss and share knowledge, insights, and perspectives to support the continuous education and awareness of this disease. The series is brought to you by PTC Therapeutics, a global biopharmaceutical company focused on improving patients' lives who are affected by rare diseases like DMD through innovative therapies, earlier diagnosis, and improved standard of care. The information presented in this podcast is intended to be general in nature and is not medical advice. This should not replace or substitute speaking with a healthcare professional. If you are a patient or a caregiver, consult your care team with any questions or concerns regarding medical conditions. Hello, my name is Dr. Audrey Powell. I am a senior medical science liaison at PTC Therapeutics and the host for this podcast episode and educational series. Today, we're pleased to be joined by Dr. Castro. She's an associate professor of pediatrics, neurology, and neurotherapeutics at the University of Texas Southwestern to discuss the clinical, diagnostic, and medical landscape in DMD, as well as interventional approaches in the management of DMD. And now, I welcome our special guest, Dr. Diana Castro. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Audrey. Thank you so much for the invitation. I really like to be here and be part of this. Let me just give you a little background about myself. Yes, I'm with the University of Texas Southwestern. I came from another country, actually. I came from Colombia, uh, where I did my medical school. Then I did training in pediatrics, child neurology, and then neuromuscular medicine. Um, I have been doing this for 10 years. Uh, I have a wonderful practice at Children's Health with a really nice multidisciplinary group. And we'll talk a little bit about that down the road. Sounds great. Let's start with a brief overview of DMD. What are the presenting signs and symptoms? Who is affected? And why is early diagnosis crucial for these patients? Sure. So Duchenne muscular dystrophy is a genetic condition. And it's a genetic condition that affects boys most of the times. We have some couple girls. It's very rare in girls, but it can happen. Uh, but the disease is... Um, inherited from the mothers. So that's why it's so important to do. Once we diagnose the boys, we have to do carrier testing in the mothers because now we learned that the mothers also can develop heart disease down the road when they get in their 40s and their 50s. And the way I explain Duchenne muscular dystrophy to the families and in general is that uh, the dystrophin, it's a protein that it's, imagine it's like an escaphold, like a shock absorber inside that round, beautiful cell, inside the muscle fiber. And this escaphold is holding this round shape, but whenever it's not present in the case of Duchenne muscular dystrophy, or it has really small, low levels of it, in the case of Becker's muscular dystrophy, that's when the fiber will probably get destroyed. I mean, as you imagine, there's not that structure holding it. So then the muscle fiber will get destroyed. And at that point is where we see uh, an enzyme that we call creatinine kinase going out in the blood. And that's the first thing that we can test for. It's one of the most important things that we can ask all our colleagues to do in case of any doubt, because it's a cheap test and it's done in blood. Usually these patients 
the normal levels that we have in general are around up to 300, that these patients will have creatinine kinase in the 10,000s, 20,000s, 30,000s. You have a boy who has these levels of creatinine kinase, most likely you have to shun muscular dystrophy in front of you. And what are the symptoms and the signs? Uh, usually these patients present between two to five years of age. And I divide, in my head, I divide the symptoms into in the motor symptoms and the non-motor symptoms. In the motor symptoms, you have a patient that may have delay milestones. So for some of them, they took a long time to start walking. They may had already difficulties early in life, but there are many of them that actually don't show anything until they're around five or four when they go to school. And then you start seeing that they are behind their peers. They are not catching up with their peers. They have a lot of falls. They start complaining about weakness, fatigue, and, and in general, just all these motor difficulties. So that is the time where the parents should definitely con you know, go and uh, consult with their pediatricians. And again, the CK level will be the first step. Then you have the non-motor uh, signs. And within those, one third of the patients with Duchenne may have learning disabilities. They may have speech delay. They may have even in the autism spectrum disorder, ADHD and so on. So it's very important not to forget that area because it can present as well in with with those symptoms being a little bit more prom, prominent at the beginning than than the others, uh, so I think that in general the the most important point to make here is that if you have a patient with any of these symptoms, if the mother is telling you, the father is telling you something is not right, I already have three children and this one is not doing the same as the other ones, do a CK level and please refer to to a neuromuscular. Um, a specialty center where we will take care. We can go ahead and do the testing. We can test for Duchenne muscular dystrophy and we can start the whole workup and, and multidisciplinary care for these patients. Thank you for such an excellent overview. I recognize that the standard of care in DMD has evolved quite a bit over the last few decades, and this has had a positive impact on patient outcomes and quality of life. How do you feel about the current standard of care guidelines in DMD? I think, I think the guidelines are great, but the difficulties is that if we're all applying the guidelines as we should be applying the guidelines, right? Uh, they are extensive. They talk about each of the each of the systems that can get affected in patients with Duchenne. So the guidelines, the standard, the current standard of care has helped us to prolong the life of these patients, to, to improve quality of life for these patients, to get them to be able to access equipment that before, you know, they were not able to. So there are a lot of good things about this, uh, the standard of care that is provided these days. But again, you have to make sure, and I always encourage my colleagues, if you don't have that available in your center, send it to us. We will be more than happy to, to provide the care that we can. Uh, there are several centers in the country that are recognized by different foundations uh, as, as centers that can provide excellent care. And what, what has helped, for example, I give you an example, the corticosteroids. It's, it's, this is one of the most important therapy in these patients. Before we used to say, we're gonna start patients only until they are five years of age. We're now starting them much earlier. We're starting them two, three, four years of age because the reality is that those changes in those cells have happened already since they were 
born. At the time, if you do a CK level in those patients right when they are born, it's going to be high. It's likely going to be high. So the changes are there. So why we were waiting? Yes, because people, you know, were worried about growth, were worried about all the side effects that the corticosteroids can um can produce in the kids, but the reality is if you look at the advantages, for example, prolong the loss of ambulation that used to happen much earlier, between seven, eight years, before 10 years of age, these kids will lose ambulation or around 10 years of age. Now we're prolonging this to 15, 16 years of age. Why is it important prolonging ambulation? Because once you get uh, dependent on a wheelchair, that also reflects on your pulmonary function. That also reflects on your upper extremity function. So we want to prolong the ambulation. We want to prolong the use and the function of the arms. And with that, also the pulmonary function uh, of these patients. Additionally, I think it's very important to think about these patients uh, by systems. So it's something that I ask my fellows, my residents, when they present a patient to go system by system, and we don't forget anything. So if you start thinking about, I said, one third of the patients may have developmental issues, uh, learning disabilities. So you should include, if you can, a neurodevelopmental pediatrician, for example, or a neurodevelopmental specialist. Uh, There is depression that we see in these patients when they get older, so that should be managed as well. If you start going down, think about the eyes. You're putting patients on corticosteroids. They have a risk of developing cataracts. So we ask them to see an ophthalmologist once a year. Swallowing and chewing, usually not a big problem for these patients until later on in the condition, the disease. But it's important to ask the questions. Are you getting tired chewing? Are you having any swallowing issue or so on? The next one I think about is snoring. Snoring is important because a lot of these patients will end up developing obstructive sleep apnea. So a sleep study is many times recommended. Pulmonology and cardiology, like I said, we have these specialties in clinic, but I want to hear as well what's going on. So I, I know what the echocardiogram show. I know what the EKG, I know what the pulmonary function tests are showing. The next thing will be GI. So gastrointestinal problems absolutely common. Constipation is one of the biggest issues for these patients, and it can really have a big impact in their quality of life. Many of these patients go to school, and because they don't have the independence to go to the bathroom by themselves, they tend to hold and wait until they come back home. So I think it's very important to discuss these, to have a plan. We're going to have, you know, we're going to regulate your, your schedule to this time and this time. Uh, after that, I'll say um, extremities. So we look at the ankles, we look at the knees. These patients develop contractures as the weakness comes. As you're sitting in a wheelchair 24 hours, you do you do develop contractions in several areas. Back pain is something very frequent, and scoliosis can happen. Again, I mentioned this before about corticosteroids helping preventing scoliosis, and it's something that has changed tremendously over the last, uh, I'll say, 15, 20 years where patients used to develop more scoliosis. Now they don't uh, because of steroids. Uh, So I think in general, the last point will be equipment. That's where, again, we have a physical therapy and occupational therapy, but I have to be aware as a neurologist. I think that I see myself as as the middle point with who coordinates the care in general for these patients. So all of these things are are extremely important, I say, and I can talk forever about this. But but the point is that that uh, that again, just 
all the support that you can get from people like in my center that we have the the possibilities, everything available for them, we'll be happy to to help. Sounds good. Do you see in everyday practice that the guidelines are being followed? Yeah, the, the problem is that, like like I just said, the problem is that I think that everybody will have the best intention, but creating a multidisciplinary center, it's complicated. We had to go through a lot. Initially, we only had only one clinic for adolescent patients older than 15 years of age who will be seen by cardiology and pulmonology. And down the road, we created, most recently, we created a clinic for young patients with Duchenne muscular dystrophy under 14 years of age. And we had to get cardiology, we had to get pulmonology. We always have nutritionists, physical therapy, occupational therapies, and so on. But getting the other specialties to buy in, to come to your clinic, to spend time where they likely are not going to be seeing as many patients as they could see in the regular clinic, but it's such an important job to be able to discuss the patient between specialties that that I think it's it's absolutely worth it. So again, if if there is not the possibilities at your side, we can always help. And I have many patients that I see once a year and then they have their local physician. That I think it should be like that. I don't want a patient just following with me because I want that patient to have a doctor in their ha- in their home. I want them to have that good connection with the pediatrician with their neurologists, if they have. So we can do a much better job of what we're doing right now. Excellent. So what has been your clinical experience in the management of DMD? Uh, So I I think that it's changing and it has been changing really quick. I'm blessed that I'm I'm at an age that when I finished training, things were starting to come, you know, more things were coming and I have been been able to live through all of these changes. And, and it's wonderful, right, to see that we have opportunities for patients, that we have different things to offer, that now we're more organized, that we're, we know the standard of care, we're applying it better. We do the steroids, we do labs, we do the referrals that are needed, uh, DEXA scans, uh, we send the patients to be seen by other specialties that are not necessary in our clinic. So I think that is beautiful to see the changes, to see the progress. We're still, we still have a long road in front of us. And, and unfortunately, it's a complicated condition. Uh, it's a very complicated condition that not only, even though it's monogenic, it's only one gene. It really, it's, it's very interesting how the phenotype is so different in, in patients, even with the same deletion, let's say. Most patients have deletions, some others have mutations, duplications, but it's interesting to see that it's hard to group them together, um, you know, when it comes to, to their phenotypes. So, um, I think that it's just, it's again, it's just wonderful, wonderful to work with the families. The families are very grateful. The families are invested, absolutely invested. These group of families are, they do everything they can for their child. Are there any best practices from your multidisciplinary clinic that you would like to share? Yeah. So we have, like I said, we decide to divide the clinic in the, in terms of the adolescent clinic and the young the, what we call the young DMD clinic. It's because we are uh, trying to to get to different things according to the age. So if you have an adolescent patient, let me tell you in general, 
my clinic has the neurologist that is a neuromuscular specialist. We train people. So we have a fellow, usually a neuromuscular fellow. We have a pulmonologist, a cardiologist, nutritionist, physical therapy, occupational therapy. We have two neuromuscular nurses, case manager and social worker. It's a lot. It's a lot of people. And we bring the patients every six months. So the patient will come. We schedule usually five patients in the morning at 9 a.m. and five patients at 1 p.m. These patients, before they come to their appointment, they already have had an x-ray. They had had a pulmonary function test, and they will be getting their echocardiogram and EKG. So that's, in general, our setup. Once they get that, they start. we put them in a room, and each of us will go through the different pieces, right? Something that I start doing lately is that sometimes I go with my cardiologist, sometimes I go to, with my pulmonologist, so I don't make them repeat the whole story, you know, three times. Uh, we ask them to bring toys, to bring their iPads, to bring food, because it's a long day. It's around three to four hours. But the families are very grateful when it comes for you not to have to drive three times, four times to the hospital, but you can just do it in one visit. More when patients, uh, when they get to the age that they need uh, wheelchairs, these are 400 pounds wheelchairs. This is not easy to put in a car or to have a ramp to to get it transported to the uh, clinic. So uh, I think that has helped us a lot and it has helped the families tremendously. Great. That's really excellent. Um, Do you have any recommendations or advice for how the standard of care um, for patients with DMD could continue to be improved across the disease spectrum? Yeah, I think that being updated, right? Like stay really informed of what is going on. So you, if you think about from the beginning, the pediatrician is very likely the one that is going to find an elevation in the creatinine kinase. And that pediatrician will make the referral. But that has to continue. That kind of, that chain is, it should continue. It should not like, oh, now I diagnose you, I have, you have an elevated CK, by. No, that is, it's an important part of the team to, like I said, the pediatrician, extremely important part of the team. So I think that uh, knowing where to refer, understanding how important to, that the referral process should be, that should be fast. Uh, if you're sending your patient to neurology and they're telling you it's going to take three months, sorry, that's not acceptable. If it's a patient with Duchenne, it's a new patient with Duchenne, I will see the patient next day if they come, if they get to me. Something that we should be getting better, hopefully, is our networks. So foundations had helped us a lot because they know which places are the ones that handle these patients more often. So pediatricians should be aware of those foundations or those sites, websites that can guide them where to send patients and how to communicate with us. So I think that that's a very important point. Uh, Second, having a neurologist at home, like I say, I want them to have somebody local. I want them to have somebody that knows them in case they get sick and they get to their local uh, hospitals. A general neurologist sees, they usually see a lot of epilepsy. That's what most of the practice are. But it's important to be updated in these type of rare conditions that now we're seeing more possibilities of treatment and research. And then if you do have this setup, but you're missing parts, I I went up, up to the administration and I showed them, right? I showed them things that, that were important for us to have and they were important for these patients to have. And 
And then I talked to the specialties and I got them excited about what's going on because I think it's very exciting all, all that is going on in this field. So I think that helps all of those, all of those things may help, um, you know, they may help getting these patients better care. Thank you, Dr. Castro, so much for sharing um, such helpful information. I have appreciate your insights and your extensive knowledge. I am sure that the audience has as well. Today, we heard Dr. Castro discuss the current DMD standard of care guidelines, how they are followed in everyday practice, her clinical experience and best management practices in DMD care. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Audrey. Want more episodes of the Take On Duchenne podcast? Subscribe to our show at ptcbio.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for joining us today and for allowing us to raise our voices in support of the DMD community.